This is God's word. Please give it your careful attention. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, KSPC. Uh, it's really, really, really good to see you. Uh, thank you for being here to worship our Lord together. Uh, every worship service we gather, uh, it is not just a memory that we hold in our hearts, but God remembers every time we worship. Amen? That assurance, um, I make uh, these graphs at the end of every sermon series. I posted it online on our Facebook group, and also there's hard copies back there. Um, I really highly value the remembrance of what we learned and practicing it. And so there is an application and memory verses that I really want you to hold on to as you go through these series. Today is the last of these series, and I pray that this really will uh, be a weapon in your hand. Let's pray. Father, please strengthen me to equip your church. The bride of Jesus is so beautiful, and it's destined to be so flawless and perfect that living our whole lives for the purpose of equipping and Fortifying and beautifying your church is a lifelong calling and an eternal calling. And so as we gather here today, help us as individual members of the church, we ourselves being the church, equip ourselves with all that we have learned the past seven weeks. And Lord, would you strengthen us to fight the spiritual warfare because we are free in you, that we are free to love you and serve you, and not because we are doing this because our life is at stake. No, you have already saved us and emboldened us and empowered us to live for you, why would we hold back, Father? So, Lord, be with us today. May your Holy Spirit reign freely amongst your children, that each and every one of them who needs to be emboldened to step out of their comfort zones, to step out of their fear and their chains, that, Father, you would do so in this short time that we have together. But, Father, you are always able to do so. So we rely upon you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, these are the texts that we, lead, uh, that we read. These are the last two verses of the book of Acts. And so this uh, is the conclusion to a, an epic story, uh, an epic story filled with how the Holy Spirit and the gospel exploded onto the worldwide stage through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' spirit. And it's the story of how Jesus was so powerfully testified through miracles and healing and the proclamation of the gospel in the face of suffering and persecution and even death. In terms of genre, this is the last historical narrative in Scripture. Uh, starting afterwards from this point is basically just all letters written to the churches. This is also the last recorded eyewitness, the historical eyewitness account of Paul and his fellows, disciples, and apostles, uh, and the most dynamic and well-known Christ follower in Scripture. So, this kind of epic, this kind of story, this kind of narrative, how do you end this well? How do you finish such a grand story to plant hope and, and strength in the eyes of the followers, and the hearts of the followers, even today, so that we would be strengthened to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus? How, how do you finish such a story? Uh, the verse ends like this. He lived at his own house, under house arrest, at his own expense, welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. 
it ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know what happens to Paul, and this is one apologetical evidence that this actually was an eyewitness account. Uh, Luke doesn't try to finish the story of Paul because he hasn't seen it. So uh, Paul is under house arrest right now, and he hasn't been executed or beheaded yet. And this is how he finishes the story. He's arrested now, but he's still proclaiming the good news. Now, even though Luke doesn't tell us what happens in the end, that we would have confidence, he tells us how it happens so that we can have faith and hope in the how of how we're supposed to live today. The last word word in the Greek text of this book, uh, in the book of Acts, is the word akolotos. Akolotos is the negation A as an atheist, A, and then kolotos uh, coming from koluo, which means forbidden or hindered or impaired. In other words, put together, the word akolotos means unhindered. It's one word, unhindered. And that's the final word that's being used here because I believe that God through the Holy Spirit wants his people to be unhindered, free. Free to teach. Free even though you're in house arrest. I mean, this is a very ironical word used to describe Paul's situation. He's under arrest and chained to Roman guards. And yet, Scripture says he's free. Scripture says that he is not hindered. Paul's health was deteriorating. He probably had issues with his eyes just like I have. He couldn't speak well. He was stoned, left for dead, whipped, shipwrecked, and beaten. How do you call that unhindered? (laughs) Uh, His mental and emotional well-being was hindered. Paul was traumatized, betrayed, scorned, and mocked. He was ridiculed by the Greeks who valued logic and threatened with death by his own people, the Pharisees. Loneliness characterized the life of Paul, and yet he is unhindered. He wasn't too well off financially. All the money that he gained making tents he spent for the church. In verse 30, nobody seems to be financially providing for Paul. That's why it says he lived two whole years at his own expense. Nobody provided for him. Paul was literally, emotionally, physically hindered, under house arrest, emotionally compromised, chained to a Roman soldier in four-hour rotations. And I hope you know that I'm talking about you. All of us feel hindered, tied down. Un, like there's unescapable circumstances surrounding us that we all feel hindered by. Let's put up a slide that I prepared. Try filling in that blank. I guess you can't see it too well. Oh, okay. It says, if only blank, then I'll truly be free. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to fill in that blank. Look at your past week and your past month. What have you struggled against so much? What have you fought for so much that you would fill in that blank with? If only my child listened to me. If only my spouse and I had good relationships. If only there wasn't this crushing financial debt. If only my mom or dad was alive, I'd truly be free. The goal of today's sermon is to change what you put in that blank. Very simple goal. I want you to change what goes in that blank. Our life can only be unhindered when we understand what true freedom is. So what is true freedom? Two points. 
Freedom is freedom from something, and it's freedom for something. Repeat after me. Freedom is something from something. Freedom from something, sorry. And then freedom is for something. Let's find out what that is, and then we'll fill in that blank. Freedom is freedom from worldly desire, sin, and death. Freedom is not freedom from any external restraints. That's what we think freedom is. Minimal external restraints to allow maximal choice. You get that? Minimal external restraints so that the freedom of the human being to exercise maximal choice is guaranteed. Yes, freedom from death, freedom from poverty, freedom from corrupt governments, all of these are important for our freedom. But the freedom to have maximal choice doesn't necessarily mean that you flourish. You get that? People have the freedom to go up and jump off of high buildings. But exercising that freedom doesn't cause you to flourish. Children have the freedom to wander into highways on the streets, but they flourish in their homes and schools under the protection of loving parents and teachers. There's something called freedom to do something reckless, and the freedom to flourish is different. Maximal freedom and maximal choice requires maximal responsibility. And have you th thought about this? We are so terrified about consequences about our lives. Like, why are we always petrified when it comes to important decisions? Which university will you go to? Who will you marry? Like, what job will you take? Why are we sometimes so afraid of making a decision? Because this world has trained us in literal thinking, in, in linear thinking, that if we choose A, consequence B will happen. And so I am afraid, even though I have the freedom to choose, I'm afraid to choose because I have to what? Own up my own consequences. And that is the consequence of a totally free and unregulated world, is that if you have freedom, you have to own all your mistakes. And if I look back into all my life, I cannot own what I did. Uh, the burden would crush me. If I had maximal freedom, I'm afraid for my identity. I can't live life freely. Do you get that? It's so ironical. If I have maximal choice, my life is not free. I am bound by freedom. I am bound by the terror of having to forge my own life and direction and taking responsibility over it. That might sound refreshing to some of you. But 6,000 years of recorded history in Scripture tells us that humans, when humans have free reign, who do not know God and choose not to de de desire Him or to honor Him, when we have free reign, society and human beings and creation suffers when we have maximal choice. So the real question turns into this. If we have free, free, like ultimate freedom, and whenever we exercise it, it turns into an unfree world, what actually is happening? It's an internal question. What happens in the mind and the heart and my decision-making hub that causes all this freedom to turn into slavery? What's happening in my heart? Because we are actually prisoners internally rather than externally. We're actually slaves to our desires and our wants. Like, I mean, you know, I am tied down like a slave to my schedule. 
Like, I fill it out without anyone telling me to. I am kind of like a lead pastor here. No one tells me what to do. And so I fill out my own schedule, and I am enslaved to one of the most busiest schedules I've ever experienced out of my own fears. What if this person doesn't believe the gospel? What if this person doesn't come to church? What if this person hasn't experienced enough love that I have to step in? Like, that's a Messiah complex. And yet, I am not free despite all the freedom I have as a lead pastor. There's a fascinating story of Reginald III of Gilders. There's a territory back in the 1300s, uh, which is now modern-day Belgium. Around 1350, uh, Reginald III and his younger brother Edward fought for succession to the throne, the regency. And Edward won the battle. So uh, Edward didn't kill his brother, his older brother, uh, but he built a room around Reginald built around him with a normal door, normal-sized door, and normal windows, and promised him that if he was able to leave the room, able to leave the room, his title and his property and the regency would be given back to him. Now, this sounds really easy. The only problem is that Reginald's nickname was Reginald the Fat. He couldn't leave the room. He was so big that he couldn't leave and fit through that door, and Edward knew that his brother was captive he was not in control over his appetite. And so all he had to do, was maintain, all he had to, do maintain, to maintain the throne is to send in the most tasteful uh, treats and dinners that the province had into that room. And he would be enslaved by his own desires and appetites. Legend has it that Reginald stayed in that room for 10 years. And after Edward died in battle, the people had to take him out by breaking that wall down. And so, even though he has access to real freedom out there and access to the throne, his own appetite, his own desires, his own internal world kept him inside. And that is a human condition. All humans are prisoners to their appetite for sin. We are voluntary slaves. You see, when, what truly hinders us is not external, but internal. We are slaves to our own sinful desires. James 1, 14 through 15 teaches us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it fully grown, brings forth death. So, a person is tempted and lured and enticed by what? Not the world, not Satan, his own desire, the fallen desires of a man who doesn't desire God. Slavery always starts with a promise. Let me give you examples. A phone promises information and power at the tip of your fingers. And so you get addicted to it. You get enslaved to it, right? A drink promises forgetfulness of difficult circumstances, and that promise turns into slavery. Entertainment promises excitement, and it leads to binge-watching on network, uh, Netflix. And all of a sudden, you are slaves to even the most innocent things because of the hope and the desire that you put in it, which doesn't belong to it. Therefore, I'm not against my congregation members having phones or having jobs. I'm against phones owning you and jobs owning you and families owning you and property owning you. It's the other way around. Nobody is really free in the most important sense of the word 
We all desire freedom, but the most important understanding of freedom, we don't realize. What is that freedom? No one is really free from their desires and sin and death. Remember the three-word progression is desire, sin, and death. No one's free from the parameters that Satan has set around us. And so John 8, 34, 36 tells us how we can be set free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. How more honest and brutal can you get? Everyone who practices sin is already a slave to sin. That's why you're practicing it. And yet Jesus says this, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We're looking for internal liberation by an external power, which is the help of our Lord Jesus Christ, to set the inward world of us and our desires free, amen, from sin and death and evil. We can't do it. We can't change our habits because if you change a habit, the desire that fed that habit will latch onto another habit. What's the tip here? People ask me, if I'm addicted to cigarettes, what do I do? And I say, try cocaine. Because it's stronger. And it takes away your desire for lesser things. And here's the thing. Any desire that you have for sin is fueled by desire for something greater. Latch onto Christ, who is the biggest desire, and all your lesser addictions will be wiped away. Amen? That's where freedom is. Following Christ so that anything lesser than him seems Childish. Like if my daughter was presented with a seokang and a Ferrari, she would choose a seokang because she doesn't experience that the Ferrari is infinitely better, at least in my eyes. And in my eyes, a Ferrari and a successful job and a big house and, you know, freedom from financial obligation looks like a seokang to God before Jesus Christ, his son. And yet we don't know that because our spiritual eyes have been blinded and we are enslaved to lesser desires. The problem is not that we desire too much. We desire too little. We're too easily satisfied. You must be hooked onto Christ to be set free from all other things. Amen? I want my congregation to be free. The world has yet to see what God can do through a people who have been liberated. Suddenly, you want to go to North Korea, and you're not bound, and just go, because God has complete control over your life. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit tells you to do something crazy for your neighborhood, and you just do it because you are not bound by conventions or ideas fueled by your lesser desires. God must have control, and control only happens when you desire the highest desire. May you desire Christ. Amen? Can you repeat that to the people next to you? May we desire Christ. Amen. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is a promise. So what is this all leading to? Freedom is not just freedom from our sin, freedom from our death. You weren't liberated to just have fun and enjoy your life. You weren't liberated to just spend your life in an unworthy manner. You were liberated for a higher purpose, 
Freedom towards something. What is it? Freedom for service, sanctification, and eternal life. That's what you're going forward now to. And so, here's the cross. Here's Egypt. That's why it says before the Ten Commandments, God says that I am the God who set you free. Why did he say that? Not only so that we can leave Egypt and then dance in the wilderness every day, but now to go forward into Canaan where what? God's people will act like God's children and be a blessing to the world. So there's a direction in our Christian life here, and we always stop here where we think it's neutral. I'm not controlled by Satan. I'm not controlled by God. I want to enjoy my life. And so many people reach retirement age at this stage and they think they have control over their life until finally they experience cancer and finally they experience the weakness of the body and they realize that they use their freedom for something that wouldn't last. It's the saddest story of all humanity and it's repeated generation after generation after generation. But only those who fully commit know what life is about and cancer is suddenly not a hindrance because you're going in a direction. Freedom will take you to meet a new master, a new Lord. That's why we call Jesus king and not just friend. To many of you, Jesus is an accessory. He is a genie. He is a vending machine. You put 25 cents in of service and you expect Jesus to give you 25 cents worth of pleasure. But no, Jesus is what? Our king who gave his all to demand our all. Romans 6, 20 to 22, that we just read. Like, Pastor John Yoon is so accurate when he thinks about what he has to say that we overlap in our sermon a lot. <laughs> it's awesome how, how that happens. But same verse. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You get that? Slavery to sin means that you're free with righteousness. You don't have to do anything righteous if you're slaves to sin. It says this. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In other words, you weren't bound by any moral standards, and yet Paul says, what fruit did you get from that freedom? It is death and shame. And so he flips it over in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification and its end, eternal life. Whoa. So, if you are now slaves to righteousness, you are free from sin, and you now start producing different fruit. Life, service, love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You go beyond the law, and you fulfill the Spirit when you are free to do so. We serve a new master. Do you know that we all worship and obey something? Uh, the word devotion comes to mind. Do you know that you devote yourself to something? What's the first thing that you do when you wake up? That's your master, usually. When you have free time, 10 minutes of just idle thought, what thought do you have that you uh, absentmindedly just daydream about? That might be your master. My previous senior pastor, I love how he lived. He woke up. When he woke up out of his bed, he rolled to the side and landed on his knees. Pray. The master calls him from the morning. 
when I am unaware of my master, I wake up. Sometimes my master. Pastor Michael threw his phone down. <laughs> I still need this. So, uh, but we have different masters. You all serve something: promotion, a better life, healthier life, six-pack. You all serve something. This is why the difference is that when we serve God, we we result in sanctification, growing in holiness and eternal life. All other things, this master destroys me. This does not give me peace. There's a term called doom scrolling. You read all the bad news in one day and your heart just gets so pummeled by despair that you just become destroyed. Your earthly masters will destroy you. But only your heavenly father loves you. And so we choose that master and then it comes that we bear the fruit of sanctification and eternal life. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.45, I will walk in freedom for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Two totally different words in one sentence. David knows this. I walk in freedom because I live by your commandments. We walk in freedom when we live by God's commandments. Why? Because when we were built in God's image, and God's image flourishes when it lives by God's will. Let's say like, you know, I'll put this back. This thing has its own free will. And so this microphone, ignoring its inherent design and its ability to you know, carry and pick up signals and amplify it, ignores that. And this says, I identify as a hammer. So use me like a hammer. Is that freedom? The flourishing and the freedom of this device depends upon the manual that was created that defines what it is. Human beings identify so many different things today. And that's why you don't flourish. Because we're operating outside and we hate rules and regulations and we forget that the commandments of God bind us, thinking that it restricts us when it actually is the only thing that sets you free. The only thing. Because we are built and created after an image, which is God himself. I hope this fuels your apologetical impulse to interact with the world. There are so many people who identify as different things. Talk to them saying that they were built according to a design and they will not flourish under their a new design. Trains were designed to run on tracks. Tracks guarantee their mobility. And we don't call the derailed train a free train. It's a derailed train. It's a train wreck, Right? A lot of you think that escaping from your rails will free you. No, that's called a derailed human being. Similarly, we don't, we don't call a disobedient person, a person disobedient to God's commands, a free man. We call him a derailed man because man was designed to know and operate according to God's plan for us. So freedom comes from obeying the one who designed you. And this is is designed for you. Galatians 5, 13 through 14. For you, will, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love, serve one another. Part of God's design for you is to serve one another. So self-isolating people who have no desire to love the people around them because it hurts so much are going against the inherent plan of the image of God as a social being looking at the Trinitarian relationship. Like, if God is Trinitarian, then so human beings also must be relational. And yet, if you don't love one another as you love yourself, you're ignoring God's plan for you and your design, and you will not flourish. <laughs> I just want to say join soon again. I'll stop doing that. I know, I know it's getting old. Join us soon. <laughs> because... God's plan for you can also be found there. I'm not telling you to have a thriving soon ministry. I'm telling you that because it's part of your design. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. All of God's commandments. So you're set free from Egypt, not to be a neutral agent by yourself, but to live according to God's plan. And what is that plan? It's all summarized in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love God, the two commandments. So when freedom is all about devoting myself to God and a life of loving and serving people, suddenly everything changes. Now the definition of freedom has changed, amen? The definition changed, and so now Paul, in his circumstances, in his confinement and chains, is not a hindered person. He's now free because the definition changed, not because his circumstance changed. I remember an acupuncture missionary in China. He lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and he had living with him four adopted daughters, his wife, his son, and daily patients. So the four adopted children and his son would often sleep outside. Sometimes when an adopted daughter was feeling bad about herself and didn't know her identity, he would let her sleep in the bedroom, and the family would sleep outdoors. And then a patient would come in, like 24-7, just people without insurance, in China, and so what he would do is he would take them to the bedroom, put them down there, and turn that person into a pincushion because he's an acupuncturist. And that person <laughs> lays there for four hours, and he's like, now I can proclaim the gospel, and he could do nothing about it because <laughs> he's a pincushion, right? And I asked him, okay, you have a one bedroom, and you have like seven, eight people living in your house. Like, being from low-priced uh, real estate in Texas, I asked him, aren't you like stuffy or like aren't you confined or aren't you, like, lacking privacy? And what he said uh, continues to haunt me today. No privacy means that I, I am always engaged in my mission. Always engaged. All I have to do is live like Christ, and someone is there to witness that. Like, I live like, my, my, I live like Christ in the living room, and my four adopted daughters get to see what a Christian looks like. And I go to the bedroom and there's a patient laying there. I live like Christ and talk like Christ. He gets to see who I am in Christ. And so he's saying, this never takes me away from the purpose that God made me for, to love him and to love people fiercely. He didn't need four bedrooms. Same thing Paul was thinking. Hey, this guard is chained to me for four hours every day. He can't beat me up because I'm protected. He can't escape <laughs> because he's tied to me. So I'm not chained to him. He's chained to me. And freedom reverses itself. Now I have all the freedom to convert this poor soul who's been tied to me. 
And I want you to exercise your imagination now. Like, you have a chain around you, here or here, wherever it is, or here even. Where does the line lead to? And on the, end, on the other end, there is a circumstance or person, something that causes you difficulty and stress. You are not tied to this. This thing is tied to you for a purpose. To live as a Christian. You are not hindered. You're not slaves anymore. God tied that situation and that person, whether it's an in-law or whether it's a boss or whether it's an, like, you know, an undisciplined child, he connected them to you that you would live out the one command that God wants you to live out, to love God and neighbor. That's freedom. Amen? I hope you discovered in that short time who this person is that you're tied to. He's tied to you. She's tied to you. That circumstance is tied to you. All of you are in chains. And my only question is this. Philippians 1.13, it says, so Paul probably talked to all the guards so frequently that it says this in Philippians 1.13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Everyone saw that. My question to you is this. You are in chains. Does society know what you are chained for? All of you are in chains, but does society and your neighbors and your soons know who you are being chained for? Is it for Christ? Or is it for something else? In other words, my only question is, are you using your chains to prove that you are in it for Christ? Your loss of money, loss of sleep, loss of entertainment, loss of time, does it prove that Jesus is who you are serving? then you are free. How did Paul live an unhindered life? How was he able to conclude in Acts 20, 24? This verse slays me and invigorates me at the same time. It's my wife's favorite verse. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. How do you think Paul was able to say this? In chains, hindered, like akolutas, he's kolutas, he's tied down to everything. He's going to be beheaded soon, killed. How can he say that he only thinks of the race that Christ has set before him to proclaim the good news? How? Because this how needs to turn into your how, where you can see the person chained to you and the opportunities that you have to use it for the gospel and not for yourself. So this how is deeply important. How can you use all that you have freedom for your master? How? I'm going to go on a tangent here. Um, uh, I talked about Lord of the Rings to the youth kids. I want to ask you, do you know Lord of the Rings? Yes? Uh, Fellowship of the Rings? Yes? Uh, There's a song that Howard Shore, the composer, he made, and uh, it's called the, uh, the Shire Theme, or it's called Concerning Hobbits, the actual title. And this is how it goes.
some say, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that's the beginning of the illustration. So some say that this song uh, was based off the Christian hymn, This Is My Father's World. This is my father's world. And uh, I saw Lord of the Rings from that perspective again uh, uh, just a few nights ago, actually. Uh, wow, it's long. it's long. And verse 3 of that song, verse 4 of that song goes like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is a ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. What is this saying? I saw the Lord of the Rings through these lyrics, and suddenly... Like when the, the, the orcs are gathering in an army and they kill, kill Boromir. And when the, uh, when the fellowship is torn apart because there are personality differences. And Frodo's always getting stabbed. <laughs> and, you know, uh, all the people are trying to take away the ring. And yet, in my head is going through that song, the Shire theme. It's my father's world. In other words, the difficulties of the orcs and the lack of fellowship and the troubles that they face and getting to Mordor and the power of Sauron was not an issue because it's the Father's world. Students, you are crushed by a lack of identity. I mean, singles are so lonely today. Some of you are, are deep financial pits. Some of you don't know how to recover from social, social isolation. All of you are going through so many things. And yet, when you remember the song, it is my father's world. What is that telling us? What does that song tell us? It tells us that this is not my taskmaster's world. That all things that happen in my life right now come from a fatherly love. So when you know that, when you truly know that, there is what? Freedom. Whether I get stabbed now or not, whether I don't have enough room to house all my acupuncture patients, whether I am in deep financial trouble right now, it is my, not my taskmaster, my cruel slave owner, it is my father's world. And he set me free. And he gave me all to live for in this life. He promised a better life in the future, a perfect life. So I can wander through Mordor and this life singing. With that theme song going on in my head. It's my father's world. It's my father's world. And that is a kolotas. Unhindered. If only all of you knew that freedom, your houses would be free. Your families would be powerful. Our church would be crazy with crazy expressions of grace every week because it's a free people. Generosity would overflow. Poor people would have their needs met. Mentally ill people would be treated with respect and love and care because in God's free world, everything good overflows. 
The gospel tells us how did this happen. God purchased the world and us by giving Jesus up for our sin and his wages, death. God purchased it through Jesus. Therefore, it all belongs to him. And in God's world, God's children are free. So if the world belongs to God, and Jesus has truly redeemed all of you, and you believe in Jesus, then you are ekolotos. Nothing can hinder you. You are invincible till the day God calls you home. And we can finally be the church. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Praising, can you come up uh, with this verse? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it says this, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings to us closely. Be free from that. So what? So that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God. Why? Jesus' freedom had a direction. And so must yours. Let's not be ignorant children where all you want is freedom from God and from sin to live the life that you want. Stop pledging allegiance to yourselves. Use your freedom not to gratify the flesh, but to serve the Lord. Amen? Please, amen. Freedom was designed to be a weapon of the church. It sets all the people free, and they live for one purpose now, one unified purpose, which is to love God and love people. In that idea evaporates the ideas of all other false freedoms, and in Christ's freedom do we see true freedom. Christ was nailed upon the cross and restrained and hindered for our sake that we would be free. And when you recognize that, when you keep your eyes upon the cross, you realize if you have been freed from sin and death and you are heading towards love and sanctification and eternal life, your brothers and sisters, let me ask you this one final question. What more can you want? Let's put that Screen up one more time the question. If only what blank, I'll truly be free. Can we change what goes in there? What would go in there? Various ways, and you interpret it uh, in your own way, but examples might be, if only this is my Father's world. If only Jesus is mine and I am his. If only I believe the truth of the gospel. If only... Jesus really did die for my sins, then I would truly be free. Are you free? Let's stand and sing and celebrate our freedom. <laughs>